It's the end of an era. Angela Merkel's exiting the political stage. After 16 years in power, she's been in office longer than a few dozen other G20 leaders. And of course, crisis after crisis. Merkel outlasted it all. She was an outsider, but hers was the second longest chancellorship in unified Germany's short history. As for Germany, its election on September 26 was a three-way split. And nothing yet is decided. Even the famously boring candidate who may have claimed Merkel's mantle still has a major scandal percolating around him. Is this election shaping up to give Germany a new era of opportunity or a new period of uncertainty? While this election has been a closing chapter on Merkel, as the parties haggle it out, it's left Germany and the world with one question. What's next? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking to Rory Casey, who covers Germany for AljaZira.com. I want to start with a photo that became kind of a defining image of Angela Merkel. It was at the G7 summit in 2018. Do you know the photo that I'm talking about? Yes. She's leaning with both hands down on a table. She's staring Donald Trump in the eye as a bevy of world leaders surround her. The photo that sort of has come to define everything that we understand about the G7 meeting is that classic picture of Angela Merkel sort of leaning over Donald Trump. I think. Yeah, it is an iconic photo, isn't it? Trump has this sort of crossed arm, petulant child's look, and Merkel seems to be the sort of uh, stern teacher leaning in towards him. I think by that point in time, Merkel was clearly the defining political figure of Europe and had been for some time. That's a role she carved out for herself. And it's partly due to her and partly due to Germany being the biggest economy in Europe. And she was even by then famous for crisis management. You know, she was the person who led Europe's response to the migration crisis, Eurozone crisis, the great financial crisis. And Trump is, you know, usually counted as one of those crises where Merkel and Germany couldn't trust the US. So, you know, the US was no longer a reliable partner. Which explains why in this photo that we're talking about, some people called Angela Merkel the leader of the free world. I think the the leader of the free world uh, applying it to Merkel, obviously it's usually applied to the American president, which makes some sense given that the US is a, is a global hegemon and has been for a long time. And I guess people were saying that because Trump was in power that the American president couldn't hold that. So not sure that that's a crown that you could really put on her. She's not someone who, you know, could lead the world or would have any interest in doing so. She does look out for Germany first at an EU level, at an international level. That's what she does. What were people telling you about what they thought about Germany without Angela Merkel? Most people I spoke to, even across the political spectrum, you know, in Berlin, it's a lot more left wing. But I remember speaking to an older lady who I asked her who she was voting for. And she said that the Linke, which is the small socialist party, and she said it was all about housing, about socialism, about rights. And I asked her about Merkel and she said, oh, I love Merkel, you know, which <laughs> isn't maybe what you'd expect considering Merkel is, is a conservative. But, you know, she's well respected for keeping a steady ship. But even among her supporters, they think 16 years is enough. People I know who have voted Conservative all that time uh, and supported her, they think 16 years is a long time. And especially this last term, 
there has been definitely a sense of running out of steam, running out of ideas, and now it's time to to move forward. As for her successor, it's not clear yet. But whoever it is, is going to be an international unknown. And that's why it's worth taking note. I think that's a curious thing about Germany is that it is the fourth largest economy. Uh, Even in Europe, elections are not covered as closely maybe as, uh, for example, American elections, even though for a lot of countries in Europe, for a lot of people in Europe, they're probably more affected by what happens in Germany. It's sort of a quite quiet power for how powerful it is. Being an economic powerhouse over a political powerhouse has worked very well for Germany and it's worked very well for Merkel and it will presumably work very well under whoever succeeds her. Sunday's election ended with the worst ever result for Merkel's party, the Christian Democrats, and brought the center-left Social Democrats into the lead. Not a big one, they got less than 26%. But that was enough for their candidate for chancellor, Olaf Scholz, to claim a mandate. I am glad to see so many here, and of course I am glad about the election result, which the people of this country have voted. They have decided that the Social Democratic Party will go up, and this is a great success. So tell me about this election. Where were you on election night? I was on election night. I was in Willy Brandt House, which is the SPD headquarters in Berlin. So it was a very good night for them, and this is a party that it's been a while since they've had a very good night, so people were knocking back the beers People were really enjoying themselves. Then the man of the hour made an appearance. People were asking for a while because all of the other uh, party leaders had already appeared on the television. People were asking where was Olaf. And then he came in on the stage and it was, um, yeah, it was uh, a sort of electric uh, response from the audience. You have a tweet from that night I want to read. Olaf Scholz dangerously close to showing emotion as his speech at SPD headquarters is interrupted by cheers, applause, and shouts of Olaf, Olaf. Can you describe that moment for me? Yeah, there was a moment in the middle of his speech where uh, he was interrupted for, I think, about a solid two minutes of cheering, of applause. (laughs) And I was looking, I wasn't too far away. I was trying to look in his eyes and certainly no welling or anything, but I I thought I saw something resembled emotion for for a guy who's known as a, as a robot. And he looked and pretty happy with how it had all worked out. What do you make of him? How how would you describe him? He's been described, he's described, he's there's so many different descriptions for him bandies about. He's been called a mid-level bank clerk. He's been called just a boring guy from Hamburg. None of them tend to be very uh, flattering, but he seems to, um, if not enjoy them, then sort of lean into the image. And in a particularly memorable one during the spring, uh, during a very tense coronavirus emergency meeting, the Bavarian leader Marcus Söder told him to stop grinning like a smurf. And he seemed actually pretty happy about that. It didn't seem to bother him at all. And he said, I like that very much. They're small, cunning and always win. There's one name, a nickname, Scholzomat. Can you tell me about that nickname? Where does that come from? Yeah, the Scholzomat, I think, comes from just the generally sort of robotic nature. He's not going to ever surprise you with anything he says or does, which in Germany can be a major asset. Mm-hmm. During my reporting, actually, when I was in Hamburg, where he was mayor for several years, I was speaking to someone who worked at the port there, and they were a former neighbor of Scholz, and I asked them, 
you know, is he really like that? And the guy was like, yes, he is really like that. You wouldn't want to be friends with him. He's very boring, <laughs> but he would make an excellent chancellor. How did he become the face of the campaign? It was quite a clever move in the end. I think there were doubts about it, even within his own party, which is famously quite fractious, that Schultz was sort of yesterday's man or whatever. But in a race to succeed Merkel, Schultz leaned into what may have been his greatest asset, his bureaucratic charm. The SPD chose him to run as essentially the successor to Merkel. And he, he did very well at portraying himself as that. He won every TV debate by being the most boring person there. <laughs> he did, and it worked very well for him. <laughs> so clearly he didn't win votes through force of personality. In some ways, it was the other candidates who fell away. There was a kind of surprising focus on gaffes in this election. What happened there? Yeah, I think a lot of Germans like to think of themselves, their, their sort of uh, political debates as a bit more intellectual or focused on policies or stuff like that. But in actuality, the, the race was probably quite superficial and a lot of it did come down to, to like I said, gaffes. Arguably the biggest was Armin Laschet from the Christian Democrats. That's Merkel's party and Laschet her successor. He never managed to match Merkel's gravitas, and it went downhill from there. The real low point of his campaign was in, in July, when, after the terrible floodings in Western Germany, over 200 people dead, worse than many years. Violent storms and powerful floodwaters destroying entire towns, some that had existed for hundreds of years. And he, he went out there, and during a very heartfelt speech by the German president about the, the lives lost, he was pictured in the background just having a, a laugh with his mates. As Germany's president addressed the devastating floods in July, Mr. Lachette was seen laughing, and the comparison with Angela Merkel's empathetic response was hard to avoid. And it did not go down well. His ratings tanked further, and they never really recovered. Then there was the Greens leader, Annalena Baerbach. She was also accused of a few gaffes. Her model campaign hit a rough patch with accusations of plagiarism and when she said she had forgotten to declare thousands of euros in income. It was alleged CV padding by saying she slightly exaggerated things in her, in her resume or that a book that she put out had some plagiarism in it, which is always a running scandal in Germany that people, politicians are, are accused of plagiarizing this or that. But she doesn't have any governing experience at any level. And so I think it just brought out the sort of inexperience. Those seem to be very much beginner's mistakes, but it of course raises the question, is this woman fit to become chancellor? And yeah, I think that kind of sunk her chances a bit. But to get back to Schultz, he was the one who just didn't make any mistakes, or if he did, and he kind of did, they just didn't stick to him. And that's... What, what do you mean by he, he kind of did? One mistaken question was Germany's biggest financial fraud scandal in decades. Until recently, this company, Wirecard, was worth tens of billions of dollars and a lucrative investment option. Now the firm is insolvent. To the outside world, it was a successful DAX group. But in reality, it was riddled with fraud. Behind a clean facade, criminals were at work. A quick reminder. Schultz, right now, is the finance minister. 
He's been in Merkel's coalition government for the last three years. And last June, a scandal broke about one of Germany's biggest tech darlings, a payment services company called Wirecard. But Wirecard was found with a $2 billion hole in its balance sheets. A private audit said it was the result of an elaborate and sophisticated fraud. The CEO is in jail, and the COO is on Interpol's wanted list. He's in hiding. And Olaf Scholz, as the finance minister, ultimately oversaw the regulator that soundly failed to catch the fraud. The Federal Financial Supervisory Authority, BaFin, which reports to Germany's finance ministry, where Scholz's minister, allegedly did not notice the 1.9 billion euros missing in 2020. He denied personal responsibility for what happened. And the scandal ran into the election campaign. The finance ministry was raided, a 675-page inquiry was drafted, and Scholz has had to testify before lawmakers. I am absolutely in favor of pushing through reforms as quickly as possible, because if we find out that in spite of all the oversight instruments that were put into place, the information that we needed was not picked up on in time, then we need new and more stringent instruments. The ministry did issue new rules for auditors and fired the head of the financial regulator. So none of it really stuck to Schultz in the campaign. There's some allegations of impropriety, not directly linked to him, but in offices that he led. But they just haven't really heard him because they're so complicated that I think the average German doesn't, doesn't really understand them or can't relate to them in a way that plagiarism in a book or laughing at an event you're not supposed to laugh at is, is more immediate. Rory says the focus on gaffes might be because Angela Merkel takes such care with her public persona. But Schultz could have dodged a worse scandal for another reason. People are used to him. They're very used to his SPD party. And, well, a lot of German voters don't go in much for change. What's often forgotten about Germany is if you look at the demographics of the eligible voters, the majority of them are over 50. And so... This tend to introduce some tendency towards the status quo in Germany. And, and there really is a, a major divide when you look at who young people vote for and old people vote for. Older people vote for the so-called Volkspartei or the catch-all parties of old, so the SPD and the Christian Democrats. Younger voters don't really vote for them at all. They vote for the uh, Free Democrats and the Greens, who are led by young leaders in their 40s who are much more focused on messages around modernization. I mean, during the Merkel years, you know, there was a lot of neglect for all sorts of things in Germany, whether it's schools, roads, internet infrastructure, you know, money was not spent on these things. Money was spent on pensions, um, sort of a sign of, of where the votes are. And the main issue that many voters, young and old, wanted more focus on was climate. It was really one of the top issues in the election. It was a first for Germany, arguably even a first in the world for a country Germany's size. Climate was issue number one throughout the election cycle. It was issue number one in TV debates. It was issue number one in party programs. It was constantly foregrounded by a lot of events that happened over the course of the year. Deadly floods struck last July. 
a result of extreme rainfall attributed to global warming. A group of six young climate activists are in their fourth week of a hunger strike after they pitched their tents in a Berlin park. But the interesting issue is that the public think climate is issue number one and they trust the Green Party more than any others. And yet the Green Party doesn't actually do that well. Why do you think that is? Did you talk to people about that? Yeah, when I talked to some voters, an interesting kind of thing that emerged was that they all care about climate. All the parties are agreed, at least on paper, that something needs to be done. So everyone is quite happy with to go with the party that just uh, works for them. I spoke to another person who said, I asked her, what's issue number one? She said, climate, of course. And I said, who are you voting for? And she said, the Conservatives. I'm voting for the CDU. And I said, why? Because they're not known to be very strong on climate. Um, And she said, well, you need an economy that works to deal with climate change. So to some degree, when everyone's a climate party, it evens the playing field because they all figure that they'll solve climate change in one way or another. It's that same love for the status quo that brings us back to why Angela Merkel has lasted as long as she did and is still leaving on a political high. I asked Rory what her legacy is for Germany and for Europe. Well, for Germany, I mean, what even people who don't vote for respect about Merkel is that she has maintained stability when, if you look at other countries around Germany, there's been, it's been a very tempestuous 16 years. If you look at countries like the UK, France, Poland, Hungary, the, the politics there is, is not nearly as stable as it is here. So people are aware that Merkel has kept a steady ship and they respect that. In the one sense, people think it's, Things are reasonably good here and they're a lot worse elsewhere. And there is a certain stagnancy as well, though. And in in Europe, um, Merkel's legacy is, again, quite complicated. She is the great crisis manager of the crisis that affected Europe. But it can't be said that she protected everyone in Europe equally. Germany is advocates for its own interests above all else in Europe. And this is particularly stark during the crisis in the Eurozone. From some vantages in Europe, Merkel's legacy is the austerity politics that shaped the Eurozone crisis and reshaped a continent. I'm Irish. I grew up, I left college in 2013. Ireland was hit very badly by austerity. And it's really remarkable when I speak to people of my own age from Ireland, from a bailout country, for example, from Greece, uh, and then speak to someone from Germany of the same age. And a lot of the formative experiences of particularly our graduate years, Germans just didn't have. It was hard to get jobs. The jobs didn't pay well. There was a lot of emigration, you know, cutting uh, social welfare. And uh, for a lot of these countries, it's really had huge social devastation. And in some countries, it's been linked by many people to the rise of the far right. It was a very different experience, I think, for Germans uh, under Merkel. I think one of the achievements of Angela Merkel in keeping Germany safe from a lot of the political chaos around Germany and in other countries nearby is that it's sort of um, depoliticized politics for a lot of people. So a lot of people just didn't really have to think about politics that much. And a lot of people were very grateful for Merkel for that. That era is over now, and that's why it's quite hard for a lot of them to come to terms with the end of it. It's, uh, it's, things are much more uncertain from here on. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke, 
with Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Tom Fenton is the editor. Aya El-Milek is the engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>